The Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, Immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. The reading, of course, today is is from the Gospel of Mark, the beginning of it, the first 11 verses. And... uh, so I want to start by sharing just some preliminary thoughts on Mark, and as I have in your notes there, uh, these are for free, no extra charge. So, um, Mark, like John and perhaps Luke, starts by using the word beginning. One of the things that you would want to be aware of when you uh, approach the four Gospels is that, first of all, a lifetime of studying the Gospels is uh, should be part of your Christian experience. Like, you should always be doing work in the Gospels. They, they are the foundation of everything we're about. And so, uh, in really, uh, reading them hundreds of times will constantly uh, yield new fruit. Um, one of the most exciting things that ever happened in my entire life, I get emotional thinking about it, was in 1998, uh, for a number of reasons, I was taking three or f- three and four hour lunch breaks uh, in the sales job I had because I didn't like the new company that had bought us, and I was stalling to make sure that I wasn't just having a knee jerk reaction before I quit because I didn't think a Christian could work for these folks. And I had been with the company about eight years, but it was our second time we were sold to another outfit, and the the new outfit just seemed like there were too many moral issues for a Christian to continue working with them, but I wanted to give it a few months before I quit. So I uh, geared back on my sales for a little bit and spent a lot of extra time in the Word. And uh, I was probably reading the Gospel of Matthew for somewhere around the hundredth time in my Christian walk, and it just opened up to me on a level that I had never seen or understood before. And, And I wish I could share with you the emotions of that. That was the most wonderful thing that I uh, maybe ever experienced. It was just a season 
uh, for several months of reading Matthew over and over again and diagramming every line and sentence and looking up the Greek words and comparing how many times Jesus said this. And I had a little code system like 1A, 2A for that first attestation, second attestation, third attestation for every time Jesus said the, base, the same idea. And it, and it was, uh, you know, when God first began to open my eyes that, that Matthew uh, was a lot more than what people say it is. Matthew, you, everyone will tell you that Matthew is, um, is written to the Jews to help them understand that they missed their Messiah. And that's kind of part of the point. But Matthew is really God's covenant lawsuit where Jesus is standing exactly squarely on the shoulders of all the prophets who brought first lawsuits against Israel before the Babylonian captivity or the Assyrian captivity of 722 B.C. and before the Judean captivity, the Babylonian captivity of 586 B.C. They made a covenant case against the people of God and, and therefore promised that all the things that Deuteronomy 28 and other uh, portions of Scripture promised would be the sanctions that God would put on for disobedience to the covenant. In Matthew, Jesus is doing the very same thing. Uh, there's now actually a book uh, using the Gospel of Luke, Luke uh, by a guy named Joel, Mc, Joel McDermott, is that how you say his name? Uh, called Jesus v. Jerusalem that that basically makes the case that that Jesus is having a covenant lawsuit against Jerusalem and against the Jews of his day, and that he's predicting that they'll be surrounded in within a generation and, and destroyed by Roman armies and so forth, as Matthew even more clearly demonstrates. So anyway, getting back to the Gospel of Mark, one of the things that you want to be clear that you understand is that all four of the Gospel writers in their minds and hearts, were writing a new Pentateuch. They understood the importance of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, as God's account of both creation and calling a people out of this world for his own possession to be his special treasure, his covenant people, his holy nation. And uh, all four of the gospel writers are, are quite clearly, self-consciously, deliberately uh, modeling, a, writing a new Pentateuch in their mind. Then the church fathers got it right in the sense that they put the first five historical books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, as the new Pentateuch of the New Testament. And our, everything about our faith starts with that. So, you know, if you were uh, not here, Stephen had me do a little lecture for the RCF people about the importance of history. The, history, uh, if, you take, if you go to the secular humanistic universities today, you'll be taught uh, erroneously that a guy named Herodotus is the father of history. And then you'll be taught that Thucydides, in his book, The Peloponnesian Wars, is the father of, they'll call it scientific history, which is a total misuse of the word science. But uh, it's, he's probably, in the Greco-Roman world, the, the father of critical history, of, of uh, 
you know, basically doubting your sources and, and asking critical questions of them and so forth. But it is entirely wrong to not understand that the Hebrews were the inventors of history. Okay, because the Hebrews, our God is a God who create, lives outside and above time, who created the time-space continuum, and he created it for his eternally decreed redemptive purposes, of which he knows the end from the beginning, and has declared and foreknown and determined, predetermined all things. And therefore, to, to Christians, history is the crux of everything. And the Bible starts with 17 books of history in the Old Testament. You'll hear uh, the, the, the books from Joshua to Esther called the historical books, but actually they're the other historical books because the first five books, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, are historical books. And they're followed by a continuing unfolding of God's purposes in history in Joshua through Esther. The, the Old Testament starts with 17 books of history. Then the uh, five major prophets and the 12 minor prophets, another 17 books, so we're up to 34 of the 39 books, are constantly calling Israel back to faithfulness to the covenant that was revealed in history. And they're doing it in historical circumstances. That's why they often start with in the days of Manasseh or whoever was the king or whatever, it'll list the kings that this prophet prophesied during their reigns. And there's a few of them, like Isaiah, that, that uh, cover about five different kings. They, in other words, their ministry lasted a while. So, Mark uh, and John both start within the beginning and they used, if you uh, are familiar with what the Septuagint is, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Masoretic Scriptures that was made um, after the conquest of Alexander and so forth. The Septuagint starts with, in RK, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. And uh, uh, sorry to have to tell Logan this. Where's Logan? Is he here? <laughs> Logan? It's not about baseball. It's not in the beginning. It's in the beginning. All right. So uh, <laughs> Logan always thought those were baseball verses. But uh, <laughs> uh, in the beginning. Uh, so both Mark and John start with in the beginning. In the beginning. N-R-K. Uh, and R-K is a, is a very important word. We get the word archaic from it. I'm sure there are those of you who think that Brother Greg is archaic, uh, <laughs> being that I'm so old. Uh, I used to have hair, and it used to not be white. Uh, basically, goes it means beginning, origin, commencement, the person or thing that commences, the first person or thing in a series, the leader, that by which anything begins to be, the origin, the act of cause, the first cause. Uh, if you are familiar with our systematic theology class, we use R.C. Sproul's 100-part uh, series called Foundations and Lectures, and he deals with, in about three of them, he brings up the idea that there has to be a first mover. 
really, uh, creationism is quite logical because something had to start everything. Right? And so, arche refers, is a lot more than uh, a time word, but it's kind of he who causes to be the first mover. It's related to the concept of Yahweh. I am that I am, or he who causes to be, in the beginning, Yahweh created the heavens and the earth. So it's a worldview kind of word. So when you do worldviews, you ask three questions. Who or what is ultimately real? What is the nature of man? And you break that down into morally and whether man has value and things like that. And then you go from there to man in society or law or economics and history and those kind of subjects. So uh, who or what is ultimately real, every person has that question in their heart. Every person who's ever lived and every person has an answer to that in their heart. And that begins their worldview. And the word archaic, Mark Mark is quite clearly uh, drawing on Genesis when he starts by saying the beginning of the gospel, you know, of Jesus Christ and so forth. So that, that's kind of important to understand. Now, the church, rightfully, uh, I don't think the gospel writers in themselves thought, I'm writing one book in a new Pentateuch. I think each of them thought, I'm writing a new Pentateuch. But combined, they, they, with the book of Acts, they create the new Pentateuch of the scriptures that our faith is based on. So that's uh, first thought. Second thought is that Mark, unlike the other Gospels, includes no genealogy of Jesus. Now, uh, I often do a thing where I put uh, words in red to remind myself, but then I go back and take, keep a copy of that for myself and take those out for you. I forgot to do that, so you got the words in red too that are just prompts for me when I'm supposed to explain this or that. Um, So, let's explain why Mark has no genealogy. Hopefully some of you know this. All four Gospels have genealogies appropriate to the main point of that Gospel. And all four, their use or non-use of a genealogy is a key to understanding what's the major point of this Gospel. If we were to get uh, four very wonderful, reliable people that have known John Gray for years to write descriptions of John Gray they would not be identical. But hopefully they would be complementary and taken together we'd get a fuller picture of John Gray, right? And that's exactly what God is doing with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So Matthew, because it's about God's covenant lawsuit against Israel and against Jerusalem and Judea in particular, Matthew takes the genealogy of Jesus back to Abraham. And Matthew, uh, instead of uh, starting with, uh, let's see if I can pull it up on my phone real quick. Instead of starting with uh, in the beginning, Matthew starts with the book of the genealogies or something like that. Let's see. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, using that word genealogy, he's per- he is deliberately tying it into Genesis. He's wanting you to say, I'm writing, uh, to understand, I'm writing a new Genesis here. 
a Genesis of the new creation, of the new heavens and the new earth. Because if, if Genesis is a book of genealogies. It starts with the genealogy of Adam and Eve and so forth, and then chapter 5 or 6, the genealogies of the generations of Noah and, and on and on. It's about five different places in, in Genesis where it's, it gives you the record of the generations of, and it, start, and it takes us through. Matthew is self-consciously doing that when he starts by giving us the record of the genealogy of Jesus back from Joseph, 14 generations, then from there back 14 more generations to David, then from there 14 more generations to, to Abraham. He takes us back 14 generations three times, or 42 generations. So that Matthew, right away, he gives us a... Uh, a key, if you will, a, a hint, a clue. This is what Matthew's about. Matthew is written to Israel. And Jesus is standing in the in exactly in the tradition of all the prophets and calling the uh, the, the prophets don't predict the future as much as they call Israel back to covenant faithfulness to the covenant Lord. Does everyone get that? And they do predict there will be consequences or sanctions if you don't obey the covenant, Lord. Now, Luke is writing to the, he's the only Gentile writer of the New Testament, and he's writing to make sure we understand that Jesus and the gospel, the kingdom of God, is for all peoples and all nations, and that's what God always intended. Right from Genesis 12, when God calls Abraham to be the father of a separate nation called out of the people of the earth, he tells them, in you, in the, in your, in the nation that's going to come out of your loins, is going to be my special treasure people, and in you, all the earth will be blessed. All the families, it actually says, of the earth will be blessed. Genesis, look it up in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Okay, so Luke... Uh, calls Jesus Ben-Adam, Ben for son, Benjamin, son of my right hand. Ben-Adam is uh, son of Adam or son of man. Jesus refers to himself as the son of man, which he's deliberately referring back to Daniel 7, when Daniel, a major prophet, uh, predicts that the son of man will come and so forth. And Jesus is deliberately declaring himself to be that son of man and tying himself into uh, his full humanity. He's 100% human, even though he's also 100% God, with both natures being uh, distinct and not confused, and both natures uh, being dwelling in one person and one being. So Luke uh, takes the genealogy of Jesus, Ben-Adam, son of man, all the way back to Adam, right? Then John is, John is emphasizing that Jesus is the eternally begotten son of God. Before Abraham was, John 8, I am, right? He's, he, 
uses over approximately 40 times in the Gospel of John. Jesus says, ego me, I am, and he's purposely identifying himself with Exodus 3.14, when Moses says, who shall I say sent me? And God says, tell him, I am sent me. And Jesus is, is very clearly in God, John's gospel declaring himself to be, I am that I am. And he's, I am the door, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the light of the world, I'm the resurrection, I'm the life, etc. Approximately 40 to 42 times Jesus uses I am in the gospel of John. So John's genealogy it says in NRK and Halagas, in the beginning was the Word, in Kai Halagas, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, so the genealogy of Jesus is that Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of God, who never had a beginning and will have no end, who exists. So that's one of the great, wonderful mysteries of the Christian life. How can you be eternally begotten? <laughs> he's begotten of the Father, he was born of the Father, yet he always was born of the Father. <laughs> like, meditate on that a while. So Mark quite clearly has no genealogy because the key passage to understanding Mark I have listed here, Mark 10, 42 through 45, when the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest, right, um, <laughs> Reminds me of some of our early uh, experiences in the, with uh, 14 year olds and so forth in East Aiden. Uh, calling, calling them to himself, Jesus say, say, saying says that asterisk means uh, it's a verb tense thing that, to bring you into the story. The, Jesus saying says to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your diakonos. We get the word deacon from that, and it means a table waiter. The greatest person in the kingdom is somebody who, uh, a bunch of brothers I, came last night at 8 o'clock and shoveled the snow because we had forgotten to line up a snow removal service uh, as part of the new building in uh, I don't remember, I don't know all the brothers that Stephen got involved in, then I heard a few names. But they, uh, wow, what a service. I mean, that's, uh, that's the greatest. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave. Notice that he uses a different Greek word. There's two Greek words for servant. One is doulos. And that's kind of the lowliest of slaves. And a diakonos is, uh, is more like a table waiter or the, like the honored servant in your household. Um, dia, uh, doulos is, is uh, the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the key to understanding Mark's view of Jesus. And in the ancient world, a slave had no genealogy. When you became a slave, you became property of the family you were a slave to, and therefore your genealogy ceased to exist legally. 
right? And so Mark is actually presenting no genealogy of Jesus because he's basically trying to help us understand Jesus made himself of no reputation. He came to serve and to give even to the point of giving his life. So that's a real key. If you can kind of remember some of those emphases and then work the Gospels with those emphases in mind the whole time you're reading each of them. Now, third point here that's no extra charge at the beginning is that Mark, unlike the other Gospels, starts at the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus. Matthew and Luke and John all give us some of the things that Jesus did and was before his public ministry, although not much. But Luke throws in the encounter of Jesus with the the Pharisees and so forth in the Jerusalem temple when Jesus was about 12, in, in that essence, Jesus bar mitzvah, in the ancient world, in the, the Christian world, we've all had a thing called confirmation through the centuries. But it was when a person uh, kind of becomes an adult member of the community. And it, in the Jewish world, at bar mitzvah, uh, a, a young man becomes an adult. And he's therefore able to publicly read and debate and comment on the scriptures. And so at, at a, in the Jewish bar mitzvah, uh, the, per, the, the candidate selects a passage of scripture to read, and then comments on it. And he is kind of saying, I'm no longer a child. I'm now in the world of adults. They didn't have a concept, uh, the concept of a teenager, where you kind of avoid becoming an adult, uh, is a very new concept that really the word was invented in about 1945 or 6, and the idea started to take hold of our, of our culture in the 1950s, uh, if you ever want to read a very good book, read uh, Diane West's um, book called The Death of the Grown-Up, where she chronicles the, the rise of the concept of a teenager and the rise of the idea that I'm going to take my uh, identity from, my, from peers of my own age and kind of stay in, in uh, not quite adulthood for a longer period of time. What historically people, uh, when people turned 12 to 14, they began to think of themselves as I'm becoming a responsible grown-up. I'm going to have a job. I'm going to own a house. I'm going to marry a wife. I'm going to have responsibilities in the community. And they took their identity from other adults. Now, now we have this whole thing we've created called a teenager which has not been a, actually a very constructive concept, to be honest. Now we have teenagers that are still living in their parents' basement when they're 35 years old, smoking weed and playing video games, and avoiding jobs and reality and maturity and responsibility. And we wonder why our marriages fall apart. Your marriage is not for kids. All right, so uh, Mark, you know, jumps right into the public ministry of Jesus, which is uh, commensurate with its emphasis that Jesus came to be a public adult servant to serve the people of God. 
So Mark just starts with Jesus starting getting baptized, uh, being led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted and, and beginning to proclaim the kingdom of God, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So hopefully that's a little bit of introduction to Mark 1 through 11 from, from the point of view of the larger picture of where Mark fits in the Bible. Now, uh, we're going to switch our attention to the baptism of John. And the baptism of John is the first of four New Testament types of baptism. Whoa, what a heretic. There's four types of baptism in the New Testament? Yes. And John, Jesus' baptism by John is the, is the prototype of all of the other three. The three are, in fact, one. Each of the other three types of baptism, this is important to understand, it's very similar to the concept of the Trinity. You know, Christianity always starts with these divine tensions. The most important ideas of our faith are, number one, the Trinity, that God eternally existed in three persons and one being. Explain that to me and I'll be set free. You know, uh, God is three, and the three are one. God is three persons. That's biblical math. <laughs> Don't try that on your algebra test. Mr. Brown probably won't give you a very good grade. But, uh, <laughs> but you can try it in a theology class. Uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three distinct persons are one being. Right? Likewise, uh, the three types of baptism in the New Testament, each of them is a complete covenant ceremonial transaction. We're going to look at what that means here. Keep in mind the words like covenant and ceremony. They're each a complete covenant ceremony in and of themselves, standing alone. And the three together are the one complete Christian baptism. Got that? Uh, so, the first one, of course, is water baptism. And it's pretty obvious, easy to see that John the Baptist um, baptism is a foreshadowing of Christian water baptism, but it's not a replacement thereof. And in fact, Acts 19 makes that clear. If you read the last, start about verse 24 of Acts 18, you, uh, and you read about Apollos being in Ephesus, and then going, and then the, he he gets taken aside by Priscilla and Aquila, and explaining the gospel. Apollos is a guy who was in Judea at the Jordan River and heard John the Baptist preach, and he felt led of the Lord and took it upon himself to go start proclaiming John's uh, message to all of the Israelites throughout, scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Because uh, there's a word called diaspora. Starting in 722 B.C., Israel was scattered throughout the, what became the Roman Empire in a progressive, progression of, of conquest and, and redist, uh, relocations. First, Assyria in 722 B.C. conquered what we know as the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, and they were forced to be resettled in, in uh what is today Syria and us Syria and, and uh, um, Iraq and so forth. So, but uh, of course, in 586 BC, the southern kingdom was was 
conquered by Babylon. Assyria had fallen. Babylon had uh, emerged as, as the power in the Middle East. And the Babylonian captivity drug away the Judeans and the Jews and the other, the other tribes, uh, again, and spread them throughout uh, mostly those countries that are today from Turkey to Egypt kind of thing. Then along comes Alexander the Great around 333 B.C., and he conquers the, 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 the territory from Macedonia all the way east to India. And then he went south through what is today Saudi Arabia and all the way wrapped around to Egypt and Libya. And, uh, and, and uh, he uh, was very impressed with the Jewish scribes for a number of reasons, partly because the Jews sent a delegation of scribes to, to uh, Alexander while he was actually conquering Syria, showing them that Daniel the prophet had predicted he would come. And Alexander was so impressed that when he built his intellectual capitals in Alexandria, and what it, uh, in, in Turkey and so forth, he forced Jewish scribes to be a part of that. Uh, and it was kind of a forerunner idea of the, today's modern university. Uh, so, uh, boy, I probably shouldn't have gone into that story as much. Uh, you read it for yourself, but what you're basically, in Acts 19, when Paul says to the, the 12 men that he, that he comes across in Ephesus, he says to them, uh, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? It's because he thinks they are Christian disciples. He doesn't realize until he says, when they say, no, we haven't even heard if there is a Holy Spirit. You can almost see, like if you kind of play these things as real scenes in your mind, you can almost see like Paul scratching his head. And he goes, in the, into what then were you baptized? Like, he's kind of saying in modern vernacular, like, what are you guys into? <laughs> what? You haven't heard of the Holy Spirit? Like, it would be the normal course of things when you led, proclaimed the kingdom of God and led people to Christ and water baptized them, you would teach them about the, the Holy Spirit and lay hands on them to receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And, he, and they're saying, we haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. So they say, we were baptized in John's baptism. And Paul realizes, oh, they haven't even heard the gospel of the kingdom. They're not even Christians yet. So if you notice, even though they were baptized in John's baptism, when he leads them to Christ, he takes them and water baptizes them. So I, all that was for too long a way of, of kind of demonstrating that although John's water baptism is a foreshadowing of Christian water baptism, it's not a replacement thereof, is all I was really trying to make sure you understood. Now, the second type of Christian baptism is baptism in the Holy Spirit. We have a whole series of teachings we take people through uh, on that, and uh, we have a short version that's four parts and a longer version that's 30-some parts, and usually we take people through the shorter version and before they get baptized in the Holy Spirit, because there's so much confusion about the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit in the church today, most of which stems uh, from the roots of cessationism to one degree, but also the anti-supernatural worldview of, of the West today. So, um, 
the idea that God doesn't heal, cast out demons, deliver, prophesy, speak in tongues, all those kind of things is mostly an idea that's not not that well received in in worldviews where there's not an anti-supernatural basis. We live in a time period where there's a we are brainwashed to be unbelieving, skeptical, natural-minded, and anti-supernatural in our approach to life. And we're brainwashed completely in that from the time we're of our youth up. It's part of a good public education. So uh, the third type of water baptism, or the third type of baptism, I would call the baptism of suffering. Now, Jesus uh, says this. Let's, let's read this. Mark 10, 38 through 40. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. He's responding to James and John, who have asked him if they can sit at his right hand in the kingdom of God. Can I be the top dog? <laughs> uh, I like it. Uh, and Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. You, you, like, you don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> you're way off in left field. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to them, we are able. Yeah, right. And Jesus said to them, <laughs> my comments, no extra charge. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized. But to sit at, on my right hand or my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now, when that CF means compare or confer with those other scriptures, which we don't have time to uh, open up, I'm down to my last few minutes, and I haven't even got into the message yet. Uh, each of these is self-contained as a complete covenant ceremonial transaction, but the three are what you really should have as your complete baptism into the Christian life. Okay, now, the baptism of suffering, uh, many of you have walked with the Lord long enough that you're starting to be familiar with that. <laughs> and, uh, but it's, it's actually uh, a very real thing. God chastens every son he receives. To be without discipline is to be with, without belonging. You're not, you know, the re, part of the reason so many people struggle with so many insecurities these days is because they weren't raised in families with clear boundaries. Boundaries and, and not being able to cross them. You know, you, you need to have a, a, a father or mother that loves you enough to win where, at the boundary mark. And I, I wish I could develop that concept more, but uh, precious in, in the Lord's sight is the death of his godly ones. And he, uh, if you sometimes, you know, it's amazing, we sell, we peddle this Christian thing these days with the prosperity gospel and, and what's in it for you, and we even share the gospel about you'll have a wonderful life and everything like this. But you know what? The guy who wants to conform and complete his death came into your heart <laughs> and he wants you to fellowship with his sufferings and what's one of the great pleasures or privileges of the Christian life is to become a partaker in Christ's sufferings you know in Colossians uh, 
when Paul talks about uh, that he does his part to fill up the measure of Christ, uh, what's lacking in Christ's sufferings, that's a little tricky verse theologically because there's nothing lacking in Christ's sufferings at all except what's lacking is our full participation or entry into them. Right? And you can't know Christ and you can't be a member of, of his family without going through the family pain and the family suffering, which is to be rejected by this world. Now, uh, I was going to do some biblical covenant review. I'm going to do this in five minutes. You can study this. There's, we have, uh, this is stuff I taught thoroughly at Wright State. I don't know if we have recordings of any of this material or not. Uh, I will probably uh, try to find a way sometime this coming year to record this material. The Bible is a series of covenants. We call it the Old Testament or the Old Covenant and the New Covenant which is actually a misnomer, misnomer being that it's not quite correctly named. Because what is the Old Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant doesn't even start till Exodus chapter 19 and 20. And so the Bible is not really just two covenants. There's about eight major covenants of the Bible, and I have them listed there in Roman numeral 3b. Now, all biblical covenants progress by fulfilling all the provisions of the previous covenants. I wish I could develop that. Read Genesis, or I'm sorry, Galatians 3.15 and then Galatians 3.17. But no covenant of Scripture, once it's been ratified, can be added to. So the only way for God to progressively unveil the kingdom of God and, and work toward the new covenant is that the covenants are all fulfilled by the new covenant. And I wish I could develop that. Uh, fourthly, you should understand that if you want, uh, want to understand biblical covenants, Google or read a little bit about what's called Susan Tree Covenants, but they were a type of covenant that's in the, that was in the ancient world. And one of the things you need to understand about the Old Testament is that starting in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, the Bible uses literary formats that are rampant in the cultures around them to, and uses, uses a model or a pattern taken from their cosmogonies, their mythopoeic cosmogonies. I wish I could develop that. But they, um, and what it does is it, does, it says the exact opposite thing that the, the cultures around them are saying. So... Um, you know, and again, I wish I could develop that more. Flipping over, uh, there are eight ingredients of all biblical covenants. Now, this is what we kind of need to get into for the water baptism we're about to have. So, uh, I'm going to skip preamble, hierarchy, ethical laws, uh, but all, all biblical covenants have ethical laws. They have the Ten Commandments, for instance, or the prohibition uh, you can eat from every tree of the garden, except you cannot eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Every covenant of the Bible has boundaries that are expressed as stipulations or as laws. And in every biblical covenant, there are tests 
that will inevitably come, such as the serpent appearing to, to Eve and so forth. Now, all biblical covenants have out loud public oaths, vows, readings, confessions of the covenant. That's why in the old covenant, uh, you see them getting together at, at the various festivals. They were given three festivals. Read about them in Leviticus 23, for instance. And they were to come before God as a people and renew the covenant. So all covenants have celebratory ceremonies of two, two inner, inextricably intertwined types. One is a celebratory ceremony of inauguration or enactment, such as a wedding. In, in Christianity, the water baptism is the celebratory ceremony of initiation or of inauguration, of beginnings. The Lord's Supper is the celebratory ceremony ceremony of renewing the, the covenant. And all co biblical covenants have both of those. In marriage, the wedding, the vows, the, the um, what do you call it afterwards where you eat and dance and it's reception. Uh, I always say the deception happens first. No, I'm just kidding. Then the reception. No. <laughs> uh, just kidding. Um, you know, all of that is, is the ceremonial, celebratory ceremony of inauguration or enactment. The marriage bed is the ceremonial ceremony, the celebratory ceremony of renewal and remembrance. That's why Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper. Do this in remembrance of me. And the word remembrance is way beyond like an intellectual memory, it's, but it's a re-entering in, and it's a, it's a live uh, spiritual word that, that activity is happening. We are renewing the covenant together. It's a most sacred thing. And all covenants have that. All covenants have signs, seals, and symbols. I wish I could, you know, I'm going to eventually write a book on this particular uh, subject. But uh, all covenants have sanctions. What I mean by sanctions are there's blessings for obeying and they're spelled out. John 10.10, 10, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. If you're not having life and having it more abundantly, go back to the stipulations and the laws of the covenant. Go back to whether you're being a covenant uh, follower of obedience. Christ, his, his actual hope for you is to, is to bless you vocationally, financially, uh, in your marriage, in, most importantly in your relationship with him, but in all of your life. That, that's his hope or his goal, but he won't do it if he, uh, in such a way that he's not the Lord sovereign of the covenant. And suzerainty covenants are, are given by an inf a greater upon an inferior. And you can accept them or reject them, but you can't alter them. What, all, what the church is always in a crisis of trying to alter the stipulations of God's covenantal words, the scriptures, and reinterpret them and so forth. Now, in all covenants, therefore, have six sanctions, 
And all covenants in the Bible are concerned with succession. How do we pass the covenant down to future generations? I actually, there was a young lady once who attended our church and said, well, I like a lot of things about this church, but you have so many people that are under 40, I don't know if I want to come here. And, uh, you know, we've added a few gray hairs since then, but uh, the truth of the matter is, there's a deliberate reason why I'm always trying to attract people who are 55 to 70 to be model, teach, disciple those who are 35 and down. And we will always have way more people that are 35 and down, even when all of you are 55 and 70 and I'm dead and gone. <laughs> Right there, they, we will have a focus on campus ministry and so forth because the seed Isaac is always the biblical emphasis in all covenants. It's always about the disciples, and it's always about making new disciples. What were the disciples to do? Uh, go into all the world, preach the gospel to all creation, make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and your job is done when they are effectively doing that themselves. We, at Grace Christian Fellowship, we call that the EPDC, the Evangelism Pastoral Discipleship Continuum. 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 6 o'clock, I draw it out as a clock. When Your, your ministry is starting to become... Uh, effective or good in someone's life when they are mature enough to model the Christian life, when they're able to say, uh, like Paul said, be an imitator of me as I am of Christ. Can you imagine that Paul, in his letters to Timothy, he says that the things that you've learned and seen in, in, in me, do these things and the God of peace will dwell with you? The goal, one of the goals of the Christian life is to say, Live with the same pattern of life, the same motivations, the same attitudes, the same way of life that I live, and you'll have the presence of God. The God of peace will dwell with you. If you want to know how to do this Christian life, uh, I was going to be making ham salad today at noon. Come over, and we'll make ham salad together, and we'll talk about life. I still remember one of my most important talks with John Gray uh, and John Bradbury, in both cases, they were standing in my kitchen while I was cooking them breakfast. <laughs> and we were about to sit down and have toast and eggs and bacon and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, we're, we're just doing life. And I like to do life with bacon. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, you know, so uh, succession. Now, all of this gets down to five overlapping reasons for the covenant celebratory ceremony of inauguration we know as water baptism. Number one, it's one of the beginning steps of obedience to our new covenant Lord. That is, the, our, again, Susandry covenants, our, our Lord, our Master, Christ's last, last command we already hit on. Go make disciples, baptize them, teach them to do it all. Secondly, it was, it's been the practice of the church from the day of Pentecost to the present. 
at the end of Peter's Pentecost sermon, which he basically hammers the people for God sent you the Christ you've been waiting for, and you killed him. It wasn't, and his blood is on your hands. It wasn't exactly like a pleasant message to some. And it said, when, that's why in verse 36 of Acts 2, they, they say, uh, it says, when they heard all this, they were cut to the quick. You know, they were, their, their motives were exposed, their, their behavior, they, wow. We've been saying we want the Messiah to come, and we knew who he was, and we killed him. And they, so they cry out, what must we do? And, and a little more seriously than most of us cry out, what must we do? And what did Peter tell him to do? Repent and be baptized, each one of you, and then receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, water baptism, the reason we do it is it's a biblical celebratory ceremony of inauguration, complete with signs, seals, and symbolism. Here are some of the symbolisms. Public identification with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, we, we do in our church, there's too, it's too complicated to explain. You can, uh, I'll direct you to podcasts you can listen to or glad to have a discussion. We do sprinkling and we do immersion, <laughs> depends on the situation and the person and the time. Where today we're going to be immersing uh, uh, Andrew Jones, uh, the great and mighty Andrew Jones, who used to play center field for the Atlanta Braves. Um, uh, but part of the symbolism is that you, you die, you're buried in the water as Christ was buried, and then he was risen. And you're choosing publicly. I love, you know, Andrew was actually willing to uh, go out and do it in the Hydro Bowl in East Dayton. I figured we wouldn't get very many people from the church to come out and join us, though. So we decided to uh, get Abigail's uh, horse trough for... Uh, for our baptism. Thank you, Abigail, wherever you are. I thought I saw her earlier. There she is. And uh, so, but the, I love the symbolism. I love doing it in a public place like eat, eat the Hyderabad Lake or whatever, because you always get a bunch of unbelievers that are over fishing and looking at, what are those crazy people doing over there? <laughs> you know, I, you know uh, uh, it's a public act. All, all covenants are pu- public. There's, there's no secret agendas in the Christian life. That's a very important principle. Jesus said, I taught openly and in the marketplaces. Ask the people what I said. Paul said, King Agrippa, these things were not done in a corner. We are here to proclaim that Jesus Christ is king and that you must receive him as your, your covenant Lord and follow him to get on the right side of history, or, or you shall surely perish. The future is with the kingdom of God. Uh, of course, there's also the symbolism of washing away your sins. In Acts twenty-two sixteen, Paul is recounting his conversion in Acts 9. And he, he says that uh, Ananias said to him, why do you delay? Get up and wash away your sins. So the symbolism uh, includes the, uh, 
cleansing and so forth. And I, again, I wish I could spend some time on all of those verses there. Uh, and, and we'll just, the rest of it's kind of self-explanatory and it's, and it's late. So thank you for, I, I, I'm about 15 minutes over what I would, would have liked to have been. Um, I'm a little rusty on this stuff. Uh, if you don't, if you don't know all this material, like if you can't rattle off the eight major biblical covenants and, and uh, this, uh, this idea of there's eight aspects of ingredients to all covenants, that is very important stuff to, to have in your mind and heart as you read the scriptures. Because the, that's a major theme that goes from Genesis to Revelation. The Bible is a series of covenants. And a faithfulness to to the covenant versus unfaithfulness to the covenant has a lot to do with historical situations and how they work out biblically. So why don't we have Jason come up and uh, I guess uh, we're going to... Or no, Amy.